0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's debate with Eddie Tabash from our audio collection titled, Does the Triune God Exist? The question to be debated tonight is the following. Does the Christian God exist? Arguing in the affirmative that the Christian God does exist is Mr. Douglas Wilson. Mr. Wilson is the pastor of Christ Church here in Moscow and a senior fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College. He received his BA and MA in philosophy and a BA in classical studies uh, from the University of Idaho. He's the author of Letter from a Christian Citizen, a response to the recent bestseller of militant atheist Sam Harris. Mr. Wilson has also played a role as one of the foremost defenders of the Christian faith by going head-to-head with noted atheist Christopher Hitchens in an online debate, and this, this debate was hosted by the Christian magazine Christianity Today. Please welcome Mr. Douglas Wilson. Our other speaker, Mr. Eddie Tabash, will be arguing that the Christian God doesn't exist, and Mr. Tabash is a lawyer in Beverly Hills, California. He graduated magna cum laude from UCLA in 1973 with a BA in political science. He graduated from Loyola Law School, Los Angeles in 1976. He practices constitutional and civil rights law and serves as a part-time judge for the Los Angeles County Superior Courts. He's on the board of directors of the Council for Secular Humanism. He's defended the atheistic viewpoint with such prominent Christian philosophers as Peter van Inwagen, Greg Bonson, William Lane Craig, Douglas Givet, and Richard Swinburne. Mr. Tabash's father was an ordained Orthodox rabbi from Lithuania, and his mother was an Auschwitz survivor from Hungary. In tonight's debate, he is formally representing the Council for Secular Humanism and its parent organization, the Center for Inquiry. Please welcome Mr. Eddie Tabash. All right, so here's the format of the debate tonight to give you a rundown so you'll know what's coming. Each speaker is gonna be given 20 minutes for an opening statement. Mr. Wilson will be going first since he's arguing the affirmative position. After these opening statements, each speaker is going to have 10 minutes to give a rebuttal to the opening statements. After these rebuttals, each speaker may cross-examine the other for up to 15 minutes, and I'll go over the details of that uh, when we get there. And then after the cross-examining, we'll take a break, and then when we come back from the break, will have a question and answer session. So that will be the audience participation part and we'll go over the details when we come to that again. And finally, each speaker will have 12 minutes to provide closing remarks. So that's how that will go. Now before we begin, I, I want to make one very brief preliminary remark. I'm not going to try to convince you of the importance of the question. I'm assuming that Uh, We all agree with these men that it is an important question. I did want to say something about the nature of debate in general. Remember that each speaker is arguing for a conclusion. So each is going to present an argument composed of premises that ideally will logically lead to his conclusion. And so here's the point. The speakers don't simply disagree over the conclusion. What they disagree on, and and, and sometimes more importantly, is is upstream of the conclusion. They're gonna disagree on some more fundamental points before they get to the disagreement about the conclusion. And now, so when you're watching a debate, and this is one of the important things uh, to keep in mind here, is to try to spot where the two, they're gonna start out agreeing on certain things, and then they're gonna part ways on other things, and not- noticing where they part ways is very important when you're trying to get to the sweet spot of arguments. So just so be on the lookout for, for those sweet spots. Okay, now we'll begin the debate with Mr. Wilson's opening statement. Uh, Mr. Wilson, you have 20 minutes. Good
1: evening, thank you all for coming. My thanks are due to CRF for hosting this, and to Dr. Stokes for moderating it I can tell already he's going to be a tough moderator I've never been at a debate where he the moderator sought to moderate what you did under your breath but <laughs> you just watch your step and of course I'm grateful to for to Eddie for agreeing to debate with me on this topic again last time he was here six years ago we invited him to dinner at our house and we had a grand old time there and last night we had a barbecue for our ministerial students at Christchurch and Eddie joined us there as well. If the two of us don't watch our step, we're going to wind up friends. (laughs) All such pleasantries are heartfelt, but they are pleasantries for all that. And so, since I have the affirmative, let me get right down to business. Does the Christian God exist? My reply is, of course he does. And in my opening, I want to sketch three main lines of argument. Here's the first one. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we know the truth of the Christian faith. God raised Jesus from the dead. God couldn't have done that if he weren't there. Now I can almost imagine Eddie's gleeful thoughts here. Almost hears Knuckles crackling, chortling, muttering in his childhood Yiddish cheerfully Wilson's begging the question. We're two minutes into it, and he's begging the question already. Well, this is because we, in the grip of modernity, tend to think of the resurrection of Christ as something which needs to be proven. And, of course, we can find elements of this in the biblical account. Um, for example, when Christ proves himself to someone like Thomas after the resurrection, da- doubting Thomas. But w- when Jesus does that sort of thing, it is, in Scripture, a concession to unbelief, it's a concession to weakness. That's not the main thing that the resurrection does. The Bible fundamentally presents the resurrection as a proof in its own right. The resurrection is not so much something that needs to be proven as something which proves. For example, Christ is proven to be the judge of the earth in his resurrection. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, it says, "Truly." These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of all this to all by raising Him from the dead. In other words, uh, the claim is made Jesus is going to judge the world, God is going to judge the world um, through. Jesus Christ, and if someone raises his hand and says, how do we know that that's true? How do we know Jesus is going to judge the world? He has given assurance of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And the divine identity of Jesus, his status as the son of God, is declared within the gospel by that same resurrection. In Romans 1, 3 and 4, it says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of god with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead in other words the resurrection of the dead is a proof it is a declaration that god makes in the world which proves other things Now, this means that god promises in scripture that when a declaration of the resurrection is made in authority that declaration carries authority with it. It's not simply an arid proposition. It's not simply something that, uh, here's, that's obviously something that that person over there thinks. God has uh, determined that in the resurrection of Jesus, the human race is being made over again. We have a new Eden. We have a new Adam. We have a new creation from uh, from the earth. We have a new heavens and a new earth, and God has centered all of that on the resurrection. So that's my first line of argument. If God did not exist, he couldn't have raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead establishes what he will do and who he is. It establishes his deity. Now, I mentioned that Eddie is going to say I'm begging the question and, and that I'm assuming what I need to prove here. And let me go on to that. And this is my second line of argument. Having declared the resurrection of Jesus, the atheist will want to say that I am assuming what I need to be proving and he will, want, he will want to shoo me back into some neutral space from which he will allow me to try to construct some kind of Cartesian argument that I can use to get me out of that neutral zone, out of that neutral space. But rather than do this, I would rather do something else. Let me explain, for, uh, take a moment to explain in an aside what I mean by a Cartesian neutral space. Um, uh, Descartes. When he established, basically, the, the modern method of philosophy, the modern method of pursuing uh, how we know what we know, he wanted to exclude everything from his consideration except that which could not be doubted. And he came up with this famous cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I am. Whatever I, may, whatever I doubt, I can't doubt the fact that I'm doubting. Um, so it would really be dubito ergo sum, I doubt, therefore, I am. I doubt, therefore I can't doubt that, that I'm doubting. But he's excluded everything else. So he's in this neutral zone. He wants to, he wants to reject and, and, and shoo away everything that could conceivably be something he brought with him from childhood um, and, and build, build his philosophy on this bedrock of unshakable, um, unshakable stones, unshakable foundation stones. And that is the method of the Enlightenment. That's the method of modernity. And many Christians have gone along with it in various ways. And they try, to, they, they try to go into this neutral zone. And they try to agree upon some common rules with the unbeliever or secularist or an atheist, rules of historical investigation or rules of logic, or whatever. And they agree on that. And then they try to reason to the Bible. I am reasoning from the Bible. I'm not reasoning to the Bible. Now here's the second line of argument built on that. If the Christian God does not, so, so Eddie wants to come after me for begging the question. He wants to come after me for assuming that Jesus rose from the dead instead of proving that Jesus rose from the dead. He wants me to prove that Jesus rose from the dead from this neutral zone which concedes the entire debate to his secular methodology. I don't want to concede the debate at the outset. I want to start from Christian premises. I want to reason from the resurrection, not to the resurrection. But Eddie still wants to come after me for this and and chide me for it. And so this is what I would say to that. If the Christian God does not exist, then all atheist arguments against my first argument are pointless. This is because without God, the universe is nothing but time and chance acting on matter. If there is no God, All we have in the universe is stuff banging around. If there is no God, if there is no transcendent point of integration, if there is no sense in it all, then it follows that there is no sense in it all. If all you have is time and chance acting on matter, then all you have is time and chance acting on matter. And if the universe is nothing but time and chance acting on matter, then there is no such thing as a logical fallacy. And so the atheist, on his own principles, has to listen to me finish the Sunday school lesson in which I will talk about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You have to unpa- we have to unpack this a little bit. We have to say, what am I assuming when I reason with you? When I present an argument to you, what am I assuming? If I'm speaking to you, what am I standing on? I'm standing on a stage. I'm standing on a platform. When Eddie stands up to speak to you, he's standing on that same stage. But when I, say what I, when I say what I say, I'm standing on a different kind of platform. When he says what he says, he's assuming the universe is one kind of thing, and he's standing on that. I'm assuming the universe is another kind of a place, and I'm standing on that. One of the things we have to do when we consider these, the, the fundamental divide between belief in God and unbelief in God is not so much look at what's coming out of the person's mouth when he speaks, but to look at his feet and see what he's standing on. What kind of cosmos, what kind of universe, what kind of place does Eddie's worldview say that this place is, and does that, uh, does that assumption allow for him to then be talking the way he's talking? If you go into the kitchen and you see somebody spilled half a gallon of milk on the floor and you want to find out who did it, and so you start asking around, we can be assured of one thing. You wouldn't, you wouldn't ask the milk. The milk doesn't know. It's the accident, right? If everything's an accident, then you can't check with anybody. You can't check with anything. So consequently, if there is no God, there's no such thing as a logical fallacy. If there is no God, why would logic be authoritative? If there is no God, why should I um, obey this abstract rule of not affirming the consequent? If there is no God, why does it matter? how that bunch of atoms bangs around and this bunch of atoms bangs around. Another illustration that I use is I doubt if we would have been able to get get this uh, auditorium this full if we had had uh, a bottle of um, Coke and a bottle of Pepsi or uh, Dr. Pepper and we shook both of them up and we put them on the table in the middle and then we popped the lids and they started fizzing over. Nobody, we, we couldn't fill the auditorium uh, to have you come and see who, which one's winning the debate. They're not debating, right? Fundamentally, they're not debating. Why are they not debating? Because they are just time and chance acting on matter. It's just atoms, it's just a chemical reaction. Now, Eddie thinks that he and I are both chemical reactions. He can be the Dr. Pepper, I can be the Mountain Dew, or I don't care, we can switch. But at the end of the day, we're both just fizzing. We're not arguing, we're not debating, we're fizzing. I believe that I'm created in the image of God, and I believe that Eddie is created in the image of God, and I believe that we can display in part that image by reasoning, by presenting arguments, by by trying to make sense of the world around us. So consequently, I want to argue that Eddie has conceded the debate by showing up to debate. When he showed up to debate, and he's, I know that he's prepared thoroughly, I know he's a careful man, but he's not done all that pr- preparation so he can fizz well. He wants to argue, he wants to debate, and the better he does, the more I win, see? <laughs> so let me proceed to my third argument, my third line of argument. This is how it works. In the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul says this, because that which, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, I want to unpack just a couple of things from this passage. This is Romans 1, 19 through 21. There are two suppressed facts. Paul is arguing, the Apostle Paul is arguing, that unbelievers are suppressing two basic truths. The two suppressed facts are these. In verse 21, Paul says that all such men, number one, did not honor God as God, and two, did not give him thanks. And so my third line of argument is this. The Christian God exists because otherwise there would be no one to honor and thank And I am filled with a a profound moral sense that I have an obligation to honor God. And I have an obligation, being in receipt of many wonderful gifts, I have an obligation to thank him. The suppressed duties here in Romans 1 are those of honor and gratitude. By the very nature of the case, we are called upon to honor God in his divine Godhead. And we are called upon to be grateful to him for all his goodness to us. If there is no God, then whom shall we honor? If there is no God, then whom shall we thank? We are creatures. We did not create ourselves. There was a time when you were not. There was a time when I was not. And now here I am enjoying many wonderful things, and I didn't do this for myself. This was given to me. The scriptures tell us that in God we live and move and have our being. No aspect of our lives has any coherence apart from Jesus Christ in whom all things hold together, as it says in Colossians 1.18. The sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ are the final and complete absolute. And without them, just think what happens to our lives. We must honor God because he is the bedrock of all beauty. When it comes to aesthetic considerations, what secularism has produced in our civilization is frankly barren. We must honor God because he is the bedrock of all goodness. We have just emerged from one of the bloodiest centuries on record, the 20th century, from Auschwitz down to the abortion mills. We have seen what happens when men think that there's no God above them. Only sky in Lenin's horrific image. Just think about that. Above Auschwitz, only sky. No hell below us. Above Auschwitz, above Buchenwald, only sky. Meditate on that. And if it doesn't scare the socks off you, you're not really thinking about it. If there is no God above the state, then the state becomes God. If there is no God above the highest human authority, then the highest human authority can do whatever it wants. Third, we must honor God because he is the bedrock of all truth. Consider the self-evident truth that atheism is necessarily relativistic. Atheists cannot even assert their own position on truth without denying it. There is no ultimate truth. Is that true? Well, no. (laughs) So why do you say it? Well, if it's true, then it's not true. And if it's not true, it's not true. (laughs) Or perhaps they might want to pretend that their system allows them to speak of truth absolutely, arbitrarily. But why? Why are the chemical operations in one sack of protoplasm, which is all that atheism believes man to be, to be preferred to the chemical operations in another sack of protoplasm? And next, and I do want to emphasize this, we have a profound ethical duty to be thankful to God for his countless mercies and gifts. One of the most striking features of atheism is its clear tendency to a hollow and very boring ingratitude. Atheists like to present themselves as intellectually daring, truth at all costs, and so on, but their stance is actually the less admirable one of being simply ungrateful. When we receive wonderful gifts, did not our mothers teach us to say thank you? The statement of our duty in this runs as follows. It is inconceivable that the living and triune God could be non-existent, for then we would have no one to thank, and all of us clearly have so much to be grateful for. Think about it. The taste of a really good Belgian ale, a full moon at sea, gravel that crunches when you walk on it, the shape of your wife's neck, the taste of tangerines, snow, sand, dirt, lovemaking between husband and wife hands that can hold all the gifts that God gives, and he gives 10,000 a day more, so on, almost endlessly. When Paul was speaking to the pagan listeners, his pagan listeners at Lystra, he said, nevertheless, he, God, has not left himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Who does that for you? God does. God has, in fact, filled our hearts with food and gladness. He has given us rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons. This is described, Paul describes it there in Acts 14, as God-bearing witness. God bears witness. Back in Romans 1, Paul says that the, there that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in all this. This knowledge is not adequate to save. For that, we need the gospel, which is why I began with the resurrection. But this knowledge is enough to make us ingrates when we refuse to be thankful. Eddie could respond to all this by saying that this line of argument is an ad hominem that atheism has to be false, that I'm arguing that atheism has to be false because atheists are ingrates. But I am beginning with God and the creature, not with the atheist. Because God gives wonderfully, everlastingly, overwhelmingly, and because this is as obvious as the green grass on your front lawn, we have to recognize that the nature of the debate necessarily calls us to gratitude. The book of Hebrews in 11.6 says that the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. In other words, God as God lives and God is a giver, making him one to whom we must render thanksgiving. Too often, various forms of the argument from design are too removed from the issue, calculated to excite admiration for the designer of all things. I want to bring this much closer to home. Scripture says that we should be seeking to excite gratitude for the giver of all things. So then, in sum, I want to argue for the existence of the Christian God in three ways. First. God raised Jesus from the dead, and so God must be there. Non-existent gods don't do that kind of thing. Second, no objections to the first line of argument can be raised without presupposing God exists. If God doesn't exist, then logical fallacies don't exist either. And if logical fallacies don't exist, then Wilson can't have been committing them. And third, if God did not exist, then what would we have to do in regard to our obvious duties to render honor and thanksgiving?
2: Thank you. Good evening, everybody. I want to, is this on? It's on, okay. I want to thank my opponent, Doug Wilson, for so graciously bringing me to his hometown for the second time in six years so that we may debate this most important topic in front of such a wonderful university audience. Now, tonight I will argue that Doug does not prevail even if he establishes a generic God. In order to prevail, Doug has to established the partisan Christian God. That means that unless, according to the strict biblical absolutist position that Doug takes, unless my mother, the Auschwitz survivor, is now in hell, and my father, the ordained Orthodox rabbi, is now in hell, that the Christian God of his absolutist Calvinist theology has not prevailed. So this is what is the least likely, the Christian God. Then there's the generic God, and I'm gonna argue that the most likely is that there is no God, but as between a generic God and a specifically Christian Calvinist God that will send the majority of human beings to hell forever, that is the least likely. Because even if you can adduce proofs of a supernatural being, it is a long leap to demonstrate that that being is the Christian God who makes sure that those who do not accept Jesus, regardless of how otherwise good they are, wind up in an eternal barbecue pit. So I will argue that the evidence in our physical universe clearly makes it much more likely than not that a supernatural self-conscious personality that is the all good, all knowing, and all powerful God that the Bible presents does not exist. My dominant theme, unlike Doug's, will be an evidential one not a presuppositionalist one that lacks evidence or is based only on the flimsiest evidence. My theme will be the lack of evidence of the supernatural and the clear indication from the physical world that the supernatural does not exist. So it's not just that God doesn't exist, all supernatural beings don't exist. My argument is based on the weight of evidence and on the evidential assertion that atheism is the best inference to be made from the existing evidence. So what I'm saying is that when all the evidence in our physical universe (coughs) is weighed, it is much more likely than not that the God that Doug believes exists does not. Now, whether or not a supernatural being exists, Particularly one that punishes you forever for not believing in Jesus is a factual question And it cannot be resolved by recourse to presuppositionalism If I told you that 2,000 years ago here in ancient Moscow that gremlins from the sixth dimension abducted members of the native population and gave them special powers and these people are now the guardian angels of the entire United States you wouldn't believe me because this would violate the laws of nature. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Now claims of miracles have the initial problem of bearing witness against themselves since by their very nature they are violations of the very laws of nature that are not supposed to be violated. All the supposed miracles that are used to verify the intervention in human affairs of God allegedly took place in pre-scientific era. Why not today? How come God does not repeat these same shock and awe miracles for those of us today? Talking snakes, talking donkeys, worldwide floods, sun standing still, people being turned into pillars of salt. Let that happen again today. When I was six years old, my father at the Passover dinner said to me, look at all the miracles that God did to get us away from Pharaoh in Egypt. And I said, even at that age, Dad, why didn't he do the same things to get millions of us away from Hitler? It is suspect. And given the laws of nature as we know them, the evidence says it is more likely than not that the claims of Jesus' resurrection in the new testament in a bible that's fraught with scientific and factual mistakes that it is more likely than not that this was fabricated than those ancient people who had an ideological axe to grind were telling the truth because if an event is not repeatable it is of no value let jesus come back again this time be re-crucified have our top scientists verify that he is dead, and then let him come back to life on worldwide television. Jesus bodily resurrects for the second time, film at 11. Let us have a demonstrable evidence. If I say that the Loch Ness Monster exists in that lake in Scotland, and we scour the lake, and I say, oh, but it's invisible, that's a cop-out. We have no evidence that the invisible being exists now Doug takes the view that he will probably wind up in a pleasant place in eternity and I will probably wind up in an unpleasant place for eternity but before we can even get to heaven or hell we have to survive our deaths and this is the problem the overwhelming weight of the evidence shows that our consciousness is dependent upon our physical brains So if a child dies now at the age of two months, what pops out into the hereafter? A thinking person speaking a language? If you take a 70-year-old man and for 70 years he has not heard the sound of human voice, but was only fed and kept hydrated and he dies, what pops out into the hereafter? By the way, since he never heard the gospel preached to him, it was kept in a room for all 70 years. What happens to him even on Doug's account? Our very language, our capacity for any kind of meaningful thought is all derived by sensory input through the brain. We have no example of obtaining knowledge or awareness outside of being embodied beings who receive information through sensory input into our brains. If that were not so, how come Alzheimer's degree uh, illness or a mere anesthetic can eclipse our consciousness? So if people believe in life after death, they're saying, destroy a quarter of my brain, you've destroyed a quarter of my self-awareness. Destroy 50% of my brain, you've destroyed 50%, but destroy 100% of my brain, and I reappear reappear in an incorporeal realm uh, once again with my mind fully constituted. Also, since our only model of self-conscious beings are those with physical brains, and we are supposedly made in God's image, then based on the model of consciousness and brains we derive from our own experience as sentient thinking beings, how can we even believe in a God because how can God think without synapses and cortical neurons? Because that's the only example we have of a thinking being. So the issue of the dependence of consciousness on a functional physical brain of being a byproduct of it, that evidence is so strong it not only renders life after death unlikely, which then destroys Doug's prediction of heaven or hell for those of us currently embodied, but it also makes God's existence even more unlikely because we have an incorporeal being without a physical body and brain that's supposed to think. How does something non-physical impact, let alone create the physical? How does pure mind with no physical attributes mediate with the physical? Also, God, and this is something which Doug has admitted, and I'm thankful he has in his writings, is the cause of evil. But how is so much evil on this earth? consistent with a loving god god does not adequately comfort suffering people in auschwitz weren't told there's a reason for this now if you take doug at his word that god in fact in the bible confesses that he god is the source of evil then you have no choice but to do what doug did on page 62 of his book letter from a christian citizen where he said that god sending Katrina to New Orleans in 2005 was righteous, holy, and good. Well, if that's the case, then was Auschwitz not righteous, holy, and good? If nothing happens on this earth without God's active participation or permission, then how does Doug morally say anything is wrong because whatever happens on this planet, regardless of how atrocious would not have occurred but for God's doing it or God's making sure that it will be done by others. So if God sent Katrina with righteous justification to do such havoc to New Orleans, including all the innocent children there, did God do the same to the six million in Auschwitz? And if not, what is the difference? How does Doug say that Katrina was righteous, holy, and good, but that Auschwitz was not? So if you adopt Doug's view, it leads to moral nihilism because what you have to do then is say, as long as something occurs on this earth or as long as something is written in the Bible, I have to accept it. So when in Saul was ordered, King Saul was ordered to wipe out the Amalekites by the prophet Samuel, every last woman and child, that was okay because God said it? And the argument that, well, it's okay if God says it because God created us, so God has a right to wipe us out, no. If I create a race of sentient robots that can think and feel and suffer just because I created them, that doesn't give me the right to cause them suffering. Now, Many theists, Doug is not one of them, many theists believe in evolution. But because of its sloppiness and trial and error features, evolution by natural selection is more likely if there is no God. More than 99% of all the species that ever existed are now extinct. This is wasteful. We have useful, useless components to our bodies that could do more harm than good, like the appendix, known to most people only when it's about to burst. Evolution by natural selection is established by the weight of the evidence thus far in our world. There's a 100% match of DNA sequences in the pseudogene of beta-globin, and that's proof that we and apes shared a recent common ancestor. But all of this now comes down to the argument from divine hiddenness. Why does God allow reasonable non-belief? Why does he, if he exists, play hide and seek with his own children? God didn't comfort my father's family and my mother's family as they were carted off to Auschwitz. There were some eyewitnesses who escaped who said that they told my father after he escaped to Canada that his mother was forced to dig her own grave and was shot into it. They didn't see any sign of divine joy because God appeared to her and said, let me tell you, it's going to be okay. You're going to wind up in a better place. Just let these Nazis do their thing, and I'll make you immortal. That didn't happen. We don't have survivors who barely escaped death reporting that there was some divine intervention to comfort those about to be destroyed. Also, why is God so inaccessible if he exists, except by ancient hearsay. If the eyewitness testimony is reliable by ancient superstitious men from 2,000 years ago in a book fraught with superstition, scientific errors, and factual errors, why does God not repeat that again today? If I told all of you that I did not take up Doug's generous offer to fly me here and I flapped my wings and I flew from Los Angeles and landed in the Pullman Airport and I produced fifty eyewitnesses who said they saw me do it, you would not believe one of the fifty of them unless you saw it yourself. Well the claim of resurrection from the dead is even more outlandish than the claim that I bodily flew without benefit of aircraft from Los Angeles to the Pullman Airport and if I brought 50 of my disciples here, and they all stood up and said, yes, we saw Eddie do it, and we were waiting at the Pullman Airport, and we saw him flap his arms and land. You would not believe that. So why can't we have miracles today? Let God turn this podium into green mist. Levitate Doug and me to a different realm right now. When I go back to Los Angeles tomorrow, have me find no traffic. Some kind of miracle. (laughs) First of all, in Genesis, stars were created after the Earth. That cannot be, because in order for planets to come about, stars have to explode as a supernova. And the debris from that explosion of stars that die forms planets. Also, the Andromeda galaxy is headed directly towards ours and will collide with ours in 5 billion years. So, that shows a naturalistic universe. Also, the Bible predicts, for instance, that the city of Damascus will be destroyed. Well, unless the Israeli army gets cracking, that's a prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. Also, the earth is 4.6 billion years old, not 6 to 10,000 years old, and this is demonstrated by virtue of not just carbon dating, which takes us back 50,000 years, but radiometric dating that takes us back further than that. And so, scientific evidence demonstrates that those who date the earth by strict Old Testament counting are wrong. Also, there is the argument from confusion. Why do Christians disagree with each other? Last week, I bought two books by Doug's fellow Reform Presbyterian Calvinists that were all written to criticize him and I read those books, and those guys are to the right of Doug. I'd hate to meet them in a dark alley. (laughs) But the thing is, how can a reform Calvinist Presbyterian criticize Pastor Doug Wilson for being in error? That means the Bible is not written clearly enough. Some portions of the New Testament say Faith is the vehicle to salvation. Others say it's got to be works. And then we have all of these very difficult things to believe. How can God be his own son and his own father at the same time? Does that mean that when Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He was really saying, me, me, why have I forsaken myself? That's schizophrenic. And also, how can a monolithic deity be triune? So here, you have a single sovereign god that at the same time is his own father and his own son and is divided up into three components. How does Doug demonstrate that this is true? Also, how come the Dalai Lama and the yogis of India will meditate for hours every day and come back with the sensation that the universal power is some loving cosmic soup that doesn't play favorites so when the Dalai Lama after years and years of sincere meditation dies will God say to him guess what Dalai Lama I was fooling you all along and now you're going to burn in hell forever because you meditated on trying to find some inner connection rather than going through Jesus, guess what, you suffer forever because of that? If such a cruel God is true, then Doug cannot presuppose his existence and make these gigantic leaps merely from unsupported, supposed eyewitness testimony, which is pure hearsay. And so if you look at the overwhelming weight of the evidence in our physical universe you should conclude that in the final analysis it is more likely that god does not exist and even more likely that a partisan god who regardless of how good you are punishes you eternally just for not praying the right way that that god really 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 does not exist. Thank you.
0: Now what we'll do is um, each speaker will have ten minutes to respond. Uh, Mr. Wilson?
1: Well, Eddie threw a bunch of things out there, so I hope you will excuse me for trying to roar through them very quickly. Um, uh, Eddie has said to, in order to prevail, I must be, I'm I'm not in a position to argue for a generic deity. And then we can go try to figure out later if it is the Christian God or Allah or some other, or the God of the deists or whatever. And I, I agree with that completely. I'm, I am um, a Trinitarian Christian. I, am interest, I don't believe that God is a neutral substance that you can then add condiments to, to flavor it according to your own private religion or theology. The God who exists, the God who lives, the only God is the God that we must testify to. And so I, I agree with that completely, which is why I always want to debate God's existence, not from natural theology, but within a Christian context. Now, um, Eddie has found out that I am, I think he used, the expression he used for me was a strict Calvinist, um, and, and I happily admit that I'm a crawl-over-broken-glass, black-coffee Calvinist. I you know, get up in the morning and I think, yay, Calvinism. <laughs> I, I don't really. Okay. I, I don't really. But I, I just want to, uh, all Calvinism means, all that is, is shorthand for saying you believe God is sovereign over all things. God, God is absolutely sovereign over all things. But that is not the same thing as assuming what you think he might be doing with that sovereignty. So I think Eddie has confounded two things. Um, I believe that the vast majority of the human race will be saved, not lost. I believe that the earth is going to be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and generation after generation is going to serve and worship God faithfully, and the number of those in heaven is going to vastly outnumber those in hell. So I don't believe that most are lost, but I do believe that God is absolutely uh, in control. I do want to touch on something we might come back to in in the uh, cross-examination, uh, there are two things here. One of them is that Eddie has said that he wants to do everything on a strict evidentiary basis. He wants to look uh, look at the evidence and follow the, ar- follow the evidence wherever it, it leads. And, he's, and he wants to set this over against my approach, which is a presuppositional approach. A presuppositional approach has to do with the axioms, the stage that I w- the intellectual stage I was referring to people standing on when they talk. What do you assume? Not what's coming out of your head. What are, what's under your feet? That's what I mean by presuppositions. Now, if you don't examine your presuppositions, then you're going to find yourself in a position where you look, you're, you're in a house, for example, and you're going to uh, act like you are a detective looking for a hair from someone's coat. Uh, that, that was left on the drawing room uh, carpet so you can solve the mystery. You're looking for that kind of evidence, and you don't, rec- don't, you don't uh, recognize that the house needs explaining. Right? Everything is evidence. The presuppositionalist says, look, it, you're, the problem you're having is you're going around the world looking for evidence. I'm looking for evidence here, or evidence there, or evidence in the other place for God. And what I'm telling you is that you can't find anything that isn't evidence for God. Everywhere you look, there's house. Everywhere you look, there's something confronting you. I want to mention this now, but we're going to come back to this. Um, uh, Eddie referred to the, the problem of evil and uh, Hitler's uh, outrage and his genocide a generation and a half ago. But I would much rather have God and the problem of evil than what Eddie has, which is no God and evil, no problem. Those are the choices. God and the problem of evil. How can a loving God allow all this to uh, occur? And Eddie has raised that question. That's one of the alternatives. But if there is no God, then where's Hitler right now? Same place he would be if he had behaved, right? What what does it matter? What was above Auschwitz? Only sky. And that means there's nothing wrong with what happened at Auschwitz. Evil? no problem. There are only two options, God and the problem of evil, or no God and evil, no problem. The current world is unlikely. Moving on to uh, the next point. He, um, Eddie asked, how can God think uh, without a body? All right. Well, here's, a, here's another question. How can you think with one? Huh? And that's more profound than it sounds. I'll develop that. <laughs> he raised the, the problem of evil again. So much evil. How can there be so much evil and that evil be reconciled with uh, the, the attribute of a loving God? The answer to this is that you can't presuppose that men are basically good. In the Christian faith, what I'm arguing for is that the world has gone wrong because our father Adam sinned in the garden and we are a race of sinners. We veer towards sin naturally and readily and we create our own problems. And God sent his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to live a perfect sinless life, die on the cross, be buried, raised again from the dead in order to reestablish humanity again, to do it over and do it right this time. That's what God did. But why does so much evil occur now? Because of us. New Orleans. He, he, uh, Eddie mentioned uh, what I wrote in, uh, in my book about Katrina. Why, why would that happen? Why would such a disaster happen to New Orleans? Well, the book of Amos says, if disaster befalls the city, have not I, the Lord, done it? Even insurance companies know this. These things are acts of God. All right? That, if the insurance companies know it, then we should. <laughs> Why why did this happen to New Orleans? Well, maybe it's because you built a major city in hurricane country under sea level and attempted to govern it through vice and corruption. (laughs) Maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe we need to take responsibility for our own sinfulness. And then closer to home, certainly closer to home for, for Eddie, is the question of Auschwitz. Where did that come from? It came from cabaret Germany, it came from a decadent Germany, it came from a Germany that had rejected God. That's where it came from. But if you've rejected God and you reject him and he's really not there, then whatever transpires is no problem. We need to contrast our worldviews as two plays. I believe that that the, the world is a play written by Shakespeare, that Shakespeare writes everything in the play, and Hamlet does what he does in the play and Shakespeare writes it. Now, we never would ask, was that, that little action there, was that 50% Hamlet and 50% Shakespeare or 90-10, 60-40, what was that? No, it was 100% Hamlet and 100% Shakespeare. All right, that's God is sovereign, he writes the play. We are responsible agents within the play. So we are in a play that's a, a, in many ways a tragedy, in other ways because of Christ's coming as a comedy. Uh, but it's a play written by Shakespeare. What Eddie has is uh, waiting for Godot. We are just in this aimless place that doesn't really mean anything, ultimately. Eddie asked, why is God so inaccessible today? I would say it's because you're not talking to him. I, I was talking to him just on the way here. He's not inaccessible. He has a covenant relationship with his people. Eddie used the example of uh, none of us would believe him if he flew, if he claimed to have flown here without benefit of aircraft, by simply by flapping his wings, even if he had 50 eyewitnesses that uh, attested, swore on a stack of Bibles or not, that they'd seen him fly in. Well, a uh, point taken, but it all should be, also should be pointed out that if Eddie had flown here on an airplane, and he had then told George Washington that he flew here on a big piece of metal, heavier than the atmosphere, and he had the same 50 friends swear that that was true. George Washington wouldn't have believed it either. (laughs) Radiometric dating, real quickly. Um, I, I, I just want to touch on these. I can't develop them as much as I would like. I just want you to know that there are responses to each one of these things. Radiometric dating. Radiometric dating is where you know the half-life of an element, it breaks down from one element to the other, and you know the half-life and you know the current ratio of the parent element to the daughter element. So you know the current loca- you know the current ratio and you know the rate at which it happens. So what you don't know scientifically and cannot know scientifically is what the initial ratio was. So if you were a, if, if this is a story problem that you were solving in school, a man is driving east and he's in Cody, Wyoming. He's traveling 60 miles an hour. How long has he been on the road? 30 seconds.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Doug conceded that it's a point well taken that if i were to tell george washington that i flew here on a big metal craft that was capable of flying through the air heavier than air he wouldn't have believed me but if i landed the airplane in front of him he would have believed me that is the whole point the point is that ultimately the difference between george washington not believing me more than 200 years ago about aircraft and the fact that it happens today is that it did happen today provably, but we still have not seen direct evidence of resurrections. And so, though George Washington may have said that I am lying back then because machines don't fly, he just died too soon. But none of us have had the same problem with respect to the resurrection because Washington died too soon, but we were obviously born 2,000 years too late. You see, after Washington died, we were able to fly through the air with heavy metal craft. But until we are able to see resurrections on a supernatural scale, we are justified in not believing them. Now, Doug's attempt to discredit radiometric dating fails to take into account the daughter isotope and half-life and the measurable rate of decay. But it also doesn't address that even before we get to that, we use carbon dating which covers for at least 50,000 years. But you see, this is the problem. If you presuppose a supernatural document which doesn't change then you are impervious to evidence and here is the great difference between my scientific <clears throat> approach and doug's locked in concrete supernatural approach i am willing to change my mind based upon the evidence so that if miracles were to occur in my life if my dead father walked in here right now and said, Eddie, why are you not in your office working rather than debating the Christian minister? And what are you doing on a Friday night? It's the Sabbath for us. I would be pretty impressed. And I might get to a temple as soon as I get back to Los Angeles and say to the God of my fathers, oops, sorry, because I would be amenable to evidence. But Doug cannot acknowledge a change of mind regardless of the evidence, regardless of how scientific, because he is locked into his biblical worldview. I am flexible enough to accept what's known as fallibilism. And that's that regardless of how firmly I believe something today, when scientific evidence comes along and says you're wrong, I would change my mind based on new evidence. No amount of scientific evidence would get Doug to change his mind about the fact that the Earth is 4.6 billion years old or the truthfulness of evolution. So the problem with Doug's attempt to presuppose an unwavering reality from a book of ancient mythology The problem with that is that he is not receptive to a change of outlook based on new evidence and I am. So the fact that my perspective would change on new evidence and Doug's would not shows that I am amenable to the evidence to follow it wherever it leads. And Remember, what I said I'm going to do is I'm going to posit the likelihood of my evidentiary approach to his non-empirical presupposition. And why should we, even if we presuppose the divine, presuppose the Calvinist go to hell for not believing in Jesus divine? Why not presuppose the Jewish God? Why not presuppose Buddhism? If I say that the very fact that we have logic, morality, and reason makes it so that If we meditate the right way, when we die, we go into a higher astral plane. And you can't make sense of the world if you refute that. And even showing up to debate me on that point concedes the Buddhist meditation that I'm trying to put over. I'm doing nothing different from what Doug is doing. And we ask without evidence, why not presuppose the Buddhist path to the ultimate state of consciousness or the Islamic path? Now, when Doug tries to say that we must presuppose God in order to even have logic, well, the laws of logic exist separately from any deity because God cannot change the fact that two items plus two items equal four items. And if Doug's a priori presuppositionalism were true, it would be logically contradictory to say there is no God. But it's not logically contradictory to say no God because that is a proposition that requires a debate on the evidence. And so when I say there is no God, Doug can't say that's a logical contradiction The same way he could if I said the United States is simultaneously north of Australia and simultaneously south of Australia. So because he couldn't get me on a tautology, the same as he could if I said we are north of Australia simultaneously with being south of Australia, Because he couldn't get me on a tautology, it means that his presuppositionalism fails, and he must duke it out with me on an evidentiary battlefield. And that is the serious circularity of his arguments. Now, he did not respond to my claim that he would have to see, from what he wrote in his book, that he would have to see Katrina and Auschwitz as The same thing. Because if Katrina happened and Auschwitz happened, they both occurred on his God's watch. His God was governing the world the same in 1939 as he was in 2005. So, why is it that somehow Katrina? was more righteously justified than Auschwitz if they both occurred on God's watch. And then, if these things do occur and they create reasonable non-belief. Now, that raises again the argument from divine hiddenness. Now, Doug says it's better off to have to ask God why he lets evil occur than to say that there is no ultimate justice. But that's a wish. That doesn't prove the existence of God. Also, if according to his Calvinist theology, my rabbi father and my Auschwitz survivor mother, who I heard many times explicitly reject the Christian worldview when Christians would try to witness to them, if they're burning in hell, that is an even greater injustice than if they and Hitler are all annihilated. What if Hitler had decided for Jesus a few weeks before committing suicide and had repented of all he had done? Would Hitler now be in heaven? And the committed Jews who would not accept Jesus as the savior but said that revelation ended at the Old Testament only, would they now be in hell? And is this a just system? And whether it is, whether it isn't, where is the concrete proof that this is how our planet is set up? You see, these are the pitfalls of trying to postulate unproven supernatural stories without evidentiary proofs. So does a Hitler who repents and accepts Jesus a few weeks before dying does he wind up in heaven because he died a christian and do his victims who are lifelong jews who have willfully rejected christianity and stuck with judaism are they in hell and if such an injustice occurs how does god prove that he exists in the first place and where is the proof that the final fate of each of us is based on such an unjust and unfair situation again the overwhelming weight of the evidence makes it more likely than not that God does not exist, and even more likely that the Calvinist Christian God does not exist. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life
0: podcast. That was the opening sections of the debate titled, Does the Triune God Exist? If you'd like to hear the cross-examinations and the rest of the debate, You can purchase it at canonpress.com.